Hello and welcome to another episode of the Open Floor Podcast. I'm Ben Golliver. Joining me this week for a long-anticipated podcast is none other than Rob Mahoney of Sports Illustrator. Now, Rob, last time I saw you, I believe we were in the dungeon at the Moda Center in Portland, Oregon. So just, you know, first things first, are you still there or have you moved on with your life? I haven't moved out yet. But I do have to say, it's very weird this time of year that I'm only talking to you now. I'm used to, by this point in the calendar, we've been on the phone for, you know, 30 plus hours at this point, sussing out the top 100. This is this is foreign territory for me to check in this late. Well, that's actually why I brought up the Portland, because it was kind of a hostage situation, like 3 a.m. We were recording during the Western Conference Finals, and usually I, we, we are basically joint hostages for all of August and September on the Top 100 podcast. So I thought, you know, why not do a hostage vacation? And, you know, we're not staying at Guantanamo Bay. We're just, you know, visiting for the weekend. Um, I know you're working on the Top 100. I'm starting to work on my Top 100 for the Washington Post. And one question that we always get uh, and it's probably best summed up by uh, Open Floor Globe member Gus, who emailed us at openfloormail at gmail.com, openfloormail at gmail.com. Gus writes, I would love to hear you guys look back at last year's top 100. Look, Ben loves to talk about Captain Accountability's state of mind, and I know he takes the top 100 seriously. The season is now behind us, so let's see how the, uh, Ben and Rob's predictions fared. So totally fair request from Gus, and we're not going to go through point by point uh, from last year's list uh, to say, okay, what did we get right, what did we get wrong, and so forth. But I do think it is a, an important step for us you know, like you know, always to review, um, you know, the pros, the cons, and the big misses, and then also I thought we would uh, once we finish that process, the self-flagellation or whatever you want to call it, uh, we'll get into uh, you know some big picture questions that will be guiding uh, this year's list, the top 100 players of 2020. So, Rob, first things first. Um, to me, I think we should start with one of the biggest misses. We had Giannis at number six. And I don't know how you feel about that, but when I was looking back at last year's list, I was just started cackling because I remembered how long we debated Giannis versus Westbrook at six or seven. I mean, those are hours of our life that we're never going to get back. And those two players went in radically different directions, didn't they? Yeah, I mean, we were really agonizing over the tiniest of details between those two guys. I remember talking at length about, you know, like, just how good of a passer is Giannis? Like, is he this guy who you can run an <laughs> offense through, who you can really feel confident about being a high-level team if that's your point of attack? And, you know, how wrong we were, misguided we were to even question that kind of thing, because even though he's not a LeBron-level passer... He's just such an overwhelming player in so many other ways that, you know, as you mentioned, his career's only gone up and up since we talked about him at the big, uh, before last season. And then Westbrook is a, a very different conversation where, you know, Westbrook is complicated because he's still driving a ton. He still gets to the basket a lot. And he's still, you know, if, if you're going to choose him taking a layup, even if it's not quite as efficient as it used to be, is still a pretty good shot. It's just all the other stuff with Westbrook. There's always a question, whether it's the settling for mid-range jumpers, the the always kind of uh, polarizing defense where he you know jumps for steals, he makes some spectacular defensive plays, but uh, but he's a, a very complicated player on that side of the ball. And you know there's kind of an ocean between these two guys now in terms of you know when you really look at the tiers of the players in the top ten or the top fifteen or you know some people put Westbrook even lower than that and that's totally fine too. But uh, but Giannis I think has you know indisputably separated himself and put him uh, put himself in kind of the top the top class of the league. 
Yeah, for sure. I mean, the we anticipated major improvement from Giannis. I think we were even kind of hedging against some minor regression from Russell Westbrook, but I do remember getting really hung up on this idea like, you know, Giannis has never won a playoff series. How high can we put him until he proves that he can go out there and do it? And I think what we got was a very, very strong case from him all season long that he needs to be, you know, right in the thick of this number one player of 2020 conversation. I mean, he puts together a 60-win season, MVP campaign, big-time two-way impact offense and defense. He's out there, you know, the greatest ability is availability. Giannis was very, very available. And in fact, could have been more available if Mike Budenholzer would have ever actually put him into the games during the playoffs. Strange coaching decisions there to just, you know, not play your best player. Um, but, you know, he got the uh, the first playoff series victory. You know, that monkey was off his back. Uh, he goes to the Eastern Conference Finals, and now he has a team in position, you know, potentially to go to the finals. So for me, um, that was a real burst on the scene type of year for Giannis. You know, we had a lot of stagnation in previous years where it was like always one, two, three, LeBron, then Kevin Durant, then Steph Curry. And it really feels to me like, you know, Giannis has crashed the party and he's going to be here a while. For sure. And I, I don't know where you ended up with all this, but like I voted Giannis for defensive player of the year. And, you know, he was a guy who was, you know, kind of in the in the running for an all defense spot previously just because he's such a good defensive rebounder. He's such a good rim protector and he's still so athletic and so quick that makes him, you know, pretty versatile on that end. But I don't know that I necessarily anticipated that from him in terms of being a guy who, you know, you, you survey the entire league, whether it's the Draymonds or the Kawhis, the Gobert's, you know, all the best defensive players out there. And for me, Giannis was was kind of in his own category in that regard in terms of a guy who can really do everything and do it at such a high level that, that he's kind of unstoppable on that side of the ball. Yeah, we have to be really careful here, Rob, because if we start talking about Giannis, we might never stop to, you know, talking about Giannis. It could be an hour and a half where we're just like, all right, the top 100 pod, we made it through Giannis and no other players. But what I loved about his defensive season, he elevated all of his teammates. He made all of his teammates better on that end. That's difficult to do. Um, and I think that, you know, talking to their players, talking to their coaching staff, it was just kind of a night in, night out thing where his presence made other guys' lives easier. Uh, I think it helped in how they tried to use Brooke Lopez during the regular season defensively. Uh, it helped when they went to some lineups that just really posed lots of uh, mismatch problems uh, for opposing teams. And it helped cover up for some of those spread four guys who really couldn't guard anybody. Um, and and Giannis was just kind of everywhere. So a fantastic season from him. Uh, I think another guy we need to mention here right off the top, it's Kawhi Leonard. And, and the reason why I say that is because Sirat Sohi, uh, amazing Yahoo sports writer from Canada, you know, we've been getting these year-long battles about, okay, how does the top 100, uh, you know, treat uh, either Canadian players or Raptors uh, in general. We had Kawhi at 12 last year. Uh, with, you know, a lot of red flag concerns. I think I was pretty brutal in my write-up of him, just, you know, how the, the exit in San Antonio happened, the health concerns, uh, and all of that. You know, looking back after last season, there was no question that during the playoffs, uh, especially after Kevin Durant went down, he was the best player uh, in the postseason. I do think there's still a question, though, is he the best player in basketball? I'm not totally sold that, you know, that's going to be sort of his uh, claim to fame here kind of going forward. Uh, but when you look back on that 12 rating, were we too harsh? Did we get it wrong? Uh, should we have had him above maybe some other guys like, say, Chris Paul uh, or Russell Westbrook? Uh, you know, maybe some guys that had red flags as well, where we wound up just kind of uh, in all of those 50-50 kind of coin flips, we kept siding against Kawhi. Uh, or do you feel pretty good about our process? 
I feel pretty good about the process, even though obviously the result is ridiculous. Like looking back, Kawhi was obviously better than the 12th best player in the league last season, and certainly in the playoffs, like you mentioned. But when you combine the fact that you know his availability was such a question in terms of whether he was going to, you know, kind of protest being traded because he didn't exactly sign up for being a Raptor, you know, what the state of his body was because we really hadn't seen him come back from that injury yet, and what his game would actually look like how he would adapt to being outside of the Spurs system for the first time, where I don't think any, I don't think either of us thought he was a system player per se, but he's certainly a guy who could be helped in a lot of ways by what San Antonio does well as an organization. And so when you look at those three things, in addition to the fact that a lot of the other top players were still in really good shape in their careers coming off of really impressive seasons in their own right, I kind of feel good about where it ended up, even though, as I mentioned before, like the result is not an accurate reflection of what happened, but I don't know how you would have necessarily anticipated Kawhi being the finals MVP and ultimately a champion based on what we knew going into the preseason. Right. We can't predict every player's dream run, right? So we could say that if you ran the simulation for Kawhi's year last year, like that was the best simulation. Uh, if you did it a hundred times, he hit the, the, the number one simulation, right? I actually thought for the regular season, given how much time he sat out and with the load management, that 12 was about right. I mean, if you look at his advanced stats, I think he was like seventh in PER, 14th uh, in win shares. Uh, 31st and real plus minus during the regular season. So I thought we were pretty close there. It was really impressive to, to see him hit that next gear during the playoffs and to be able to sustain it and then to be able to do it through injury at times where you could just kind of tell he wasn't quite right. I mean, that was a, a big question that I had was just a character concern. It's like, does this guy bought in? Like, is he going to go to Toronto and actually, you know, do it for his new teammates or is he just going to have one eye on the future? Uh, coming off the San Antonio experience, I think those were very, very fair doubts, and he answered them. So obviously, in this year's list, when we're going through this uh, separately, uh, I'm sure he's going to get uh, a nice bump from each of us uh, after doing that. You know, another really interesting, uh, I don't know if it was really a big debate last year, but we had Curry at three and Harden at four. And it's so tempting sometimes with James Harden's just like box score stats, just the incredible points per game numbers he puts up, the huge assist numbers to kind of like get yourself into that mindset of like, okay, is this guy the best player in basketball? Like, is he, has he weaseled his way into that spot? Obviously, he has the MVP, the MVP runner up. Uh, you know, he's right in the middle of his prime. He's been leading just incredible offenses year after year after year. Uh, I wonder if it struck you at all like it did for me uh, during that second uh, second round series when we were both down there in Houston um, that, you know, Curry and Harden kind of like three versus four were going heads up, uh, you know, late in that series, uh, especially once Kevin Durant went down. And, you know, Curry, who to me had some really inconsistent moments throughout the playoffs and even during that series specifically, uh, was able to kind of hold on to that throne. I mean, these are always the hardest parts of the conversation, right? Which is, you know, you strip away, as you mentioned, the Kevin Durant kind of safety net for the Warriors, and you have a Steph Curry-led team and a James Harden-led team, and then assigning accountability for which team wins and which team loses, and, you know, who's really involved in deciding that verdict. And I think we can say without question that Curry played a huge part in pushing the Warriors over the top. I mean, his second half in that, I believe it was game six, that is the elimination game, was just incredible. I mean, it, it was one of Curry's best playoff performances, certainly one of his best playoff halves. And it, it's not like James Harden played poorly in that game. I think he ended up with 35 points. Like, it was still a good game for him overall. And yet, like, the spirit of the Rockets looked so sapped by the end, and it was so clear that the energy in that series had shifted at that point that it's hard not to hold it against him in some ways. And so I think it's a very different narrative with James Harden this year than in previous years because we're not talking about 
oh, he pushed himself too hard going for the MVP. He was so clearly tapped out. Uh, he looked sapped. He looked like he was out of energy. Because I think Harden was still there in the end and still scoring really well and creating really well. It's just a matter of, like, if this guy is your best player, what does that do in terms of rallying the people around him? Does he have that kind of, you know, we've talked with Curry a lot about kind of a Tim Duncan-like effect for him, the way he galvanizes his teammates from the way he plays. And Harden, I think, in some ways, you know, he, he works so independently and so much out of isolation. And it's so hard to do that, but it can also create some weird inter-team dynamics that, you know, may or may not have contributed to whatever happened between him and Chris Paul, for example. Yeah, it's really funny because I think both you and I are pretty analytically minded guys. I and mean, we definitely look at the numbers, the advanced stats, the impact numbers and all that stuff. But sometimes when we're having these conversations about guys, we really get into like the middle school terminology, right? It's like, who's got the heart? Like who, who's making his teammates better? Like who's about the team first? And uh, just because you're trying to like, you know, have tiebreakers between really, really, really good and really accomplished players who are all in their primes and playing incredible basketball. And I think for Curry, I mean, some of those intangibles that I think that, you know, we have really highlighted on this list in you know, multiple years going back, really shown through during the postseason. I know they didn't get it done in the finals. Uh, it was like, you know, a few too many just absolutely catastrophic injuries for him to kind of pull it off. Um, and of course, he did have a shot there with that one three-pointer. He wasn't able to do it. Uh, but to me, I think that, you know, he showed that he remains a kind of a class above some of these other guys where uh, I think there was some of those doubts during the Kevin Durant era about has he been eclipsed? Is it still his team? I mean, just I'm not saying those were legitimate uh, or major questions, um, but, you know, his numbers weren't quite the same. Obviously, uh, his profile, his, you know, the hype around Curry uh, wasn't quite where it was during his MVP seasons. And I thought he really put a stamp on, uh, on, on last season. And of course, he's coming into this offseason with just total confidence, uh, saying all of the right things. I mean, to me, um, he is also a player who should be in the conversation for next year's number one uh, spot, uh, just given what we've seen him do when he was the number one guy in Golden State, the fact that they're going to need him to carry a big load on offense. Of course, you've got the health questions, the durability questions. Uh, how much are they going to push him during next year's regular season? Uh, but I think he's going to be in that mix. You know, one that really bugs me, Rob, and this might bug me a little bit more than any of the rest. Let's it's hear it. Nikola Jokic. We had him at 18 last year. Remember, we were going back and forth, Jokic versus Towns. I think we had Jokic at 18, Towns at 19. And what bothers me is how proud of ourselves we were that we went with Jokic <laughs> over Towns. Because remember, Towns has the bigger box score stats. They're both kind of regarded as like these, uh, you know, below average defenders or minus defenders. And we were really like, I think, kind of you know, deep into our bag of like, oh, he makes his teammates better. It's the Magic Johnson effect, right? It's the, the John Stockton effect when we're talking about Jokic uh, and defending him. And little did we know, there was no comparing those two players last year. I mean, Jokic, uh, you know, was rightfully viewed as a, a top five MVP candidate. Um, he had his team, you know, just in the playoffs for the first time, you know, 50 plus wins, phenomenal offense, major role held up during, you know, crazy amounts of uh, playing time during the postseason, in, in, including that one just endless overtime game against the Blazers. He answered a lot of questions, I think, in the same way that Giannis did. But we were significantly lower on Jokic uh, than we probably should have been. Uh, if you could do it over, and I kind of want a do-over on this one, like where would you have put him uh, if you could have a do-over? It's a good question. I think you know the 
comparison point with Towns, I think it's still valid in some ways. And certainly those two guys are always so fun to watch head to head because you can tell there's like a little bit of juice between them in terms of how they approach each other and clearly, I think, implied in that what they think of each other relative to their own skills. So I think Jokic would move up, especially when you, you know, if you know the hindsight of kind of like what Kyrie Irving's season would look like in Boston, for example, I just don't see a way you would put him over Jokic. And like Al Horford is entering kind of a different stage of his career where you're talking about Jokic, who's like such a clear superstar, I think, at this point. And right, so, like, don't we have to jump him all the way up into like the Joel Embiid conversation? Like, I mean, to me, those guys are very, very comparable in terms of like their top 100 value. Absolutely. I mean, I think you'll find people whose kind of tastes vary in terms of the Jokic versus Embiid. You know, whether you prefer a little bit more of a rim protector, whether you hedge a little bit against Embiid's injuries, I think I could see that being more of a coin flip scenario than Jokic Towns would be relative to last year. But I mean, let me just say, look, we, we live in very uncertain times, and it's nice that Jokic could go into his first postseason and just put all of these big questions to rest regarding like, oh, is he going to be able to hold up against, you know, playoff scrutiny? Our team's going to be able to attack him defensively. And nope, he's just one of maybe the, you know, if not three, then certainly five best players in the playoffs last year, just produced at an unbelievable level led his team through all kinds of tough competitive games, including late into those games where, as you mentioned, he's carrying the workload through fourth quarters and overtimes. He's the one who's bailing out his teammates when they're not able to kind of put things together in certain spots. Like, what an incredible showing from Jokic. And I think, you know, ranking him this year is going to be tricky because they're still, you know, comparing him now against the superstar class brings a whole nother set of concerns. But I think he can be really pleased and should be really proud of kind of what the player he's been to this point. Yeah, um, you know, I, you know, like the old cowboy movie, like the whoa there, like they do with the horses. Like that's what I'm doing to myself when it comes to ranking Jokic this year, because like I'm ready to get really, really aggressive and put him really, really high. But like last year we had Embiid at nine, and I think both those guys have to be top ten guys this year. No, I, I agree completely. It's just going to be a matter of where they fit and kind of how, I mean, how you modulate the importance of the center position now against the rest of the league. And it's kind of a bigger conversation, too, that I'm sure we'll get into with some other guys where, you know, like, what is the value? I think center is probably one of the more mercenary positions in the league right now where you can get pretty good centers at you know pre, on pretty cheap contracts, guys who you just kind of plug in and you fill in and they, they sop up minutes and they do all right. And then in the playoffs, maybe they play a little less and you rely on some of your more important players. But these guys who are centers but also superstars – you know, that's a very different conversation. And, and the value of having a guy like Embiid or a guy like Jokic who they kind of change the nature of what you demand of an opponent and the kinds of players that they can put on the floor because all of a sudden going small doesn't seem quite so viable when, you know, your small ball, your P.J. Tucker or whoever also has to guard Nikola Jokic or, you know, whatever small ball center of choice in the East also has to guard Joel Embiid. I mean, these are guys who, who change the game. For sure. And there's a few that are going to be, you know, in that very elite uh, class. And then, you know, as usual, there's not going to be, I think, that many centers towards the top of these lists. And this will be maybe a transition year with Golden State's small ball wrecking crew kind of broken up. We'll see. Are there some centers who are able to kind of step forward and establish themselves, you know, in a kind of a different conversation as, you know, either a secondary star or maybe even, you know, a, a big alpha star uh, type guy as well? Hey, speaking of centers, I think one of the guys we had on the list that we missed by the most, and look, just as a disclaimer, Rob and I have never been wrong, okay? We've gotten every number right for as many years as we did this thing, uh, but maybe one that we got a little bit off, 
uh, Vucevic, Nikola Vucevic from Orlando. We had him at number 90. Like, And it's funny because he was like right behind DeJounte Murray, who didn't even play last year. So that's like a little bit of a rough look. Um, but I was looking at like his advanced stats. I didn't realize. I mean, he's ninth. Uh, in player efficiency rating, 10th in win shares, 8th in real plus minus. I mean, that's usually the type of like across the board performance you only see from like top five level guys. I mean, you have really, really good players who weren't able to match um, his rankings in all three of those categories. Of course, he takes Orlando to the playoffs. They go out pretty early. uh, And maybe some people would argue he got exposed a little bit in the postseason as well. Uh, But obviously, he had a career year, contract year, uh, and certainly you know, it was like the most hopeful season he's been a part of. Uh, are you with me? Are you feeling a little shame on that one? A little bit. And, and But it's one of those things, too. And it kind of goes to show that just when you think you have a player figured out, you know, Vucevic went into last season, I think he was 28 years old, seven years into his career. And he just completely blindsided us with his level of development. And it's not like he transformed his game. It's not like he was like Blake Griffin or something where all of a sudden he becomes this incredible pull-up three-point shooter. He just did all the things he did before better, you know, more consistently, more efficiently. And he became a different kind of player as a result of that. And I, I think he did get, you know, like Marcus Gasol ate his lunch in the playoffs. Like that is a fact of life we have to consider in kind of evaluating who he is going forward. But there's no question he's better than number 90. And, and a lot of it comes down to, you know, with the top 100, at least in terms of the way I think about it, there's kind of two parallel conversations happening. There's how, you know, how much does this player help me go from zero to being a really good team? You know, a 40 to 45, maybe 48 win team. And then there's the question of how, you know, how far does this player help me in going from that level to great contending championship level team? And I think in the first conversation, Vucevic is really good. Like he is no, you know, unquestionably valuable in terms of getting getting through 82, putting together a winning team and a winning schedule, getting into the playoffs, maybe getting a first round or a second round win, uh, depending on kind of what his role with your team is. It's that second question that's more thorny for him. But if you're an ace in that first question or even really good, you definitely deserve to be higher than number 90. Yeah, you make a good point. It was a difficult breakout to predict. I mean, he's been like good or very good for a long time, but he was significantly better than that. It was a little bit out of left field. Uh, it's the type of team that tends to get overlooked as well. So, you know, we have a couple Magic fans out there like Kevin Diaz. Uh, he emails us weekly to tell us that we overlooked the Magic. On this one, Kevin, you were right on the money. Um, let's throw a bone to the termites from Toronto. We did not have Pascal Siakam on the list last year. Did we discuss him? I feel like we might have discussed him, but only briefly. We definitely discussed him. I think in our conversations, we saw him more as, you know, this is like a really interesting energy player, a guy who's going to come in and change some games, who's going to be, you know, kind of flawed in his own way, but can, you know, ramp up the pace, play some pretty good defense, uh, and, and really kind of shock some teams in the regular season in terms of his energy level and his hustle and his commitment. And I think what we really underestimated was like, this guy's all of a sudden a really good isolation and post scorer. He's, you know, not just a good defender, but an all defense candidate. And I think, you know, by all means should be one going forward. You know, he has that kind of lasting power and he's obviously still on the come up of his career. Uh, just seeing kind of what he could do when put in that role where, you know, Kawhi, as we talked about, was being, you know, his load was being managed. Kyle Lowry is one of these players who's, you know, you're not funneling your entire offense through Kyle Lowry. He's, his skill set is a little bit more peculiar and more delicate than that. And I think Siakam was the big beneficiary of those opportunities and thrived with them in a way that I certainly didn't expect. 
Yeah, and like, you know, in our defense, I mean, his second year stats, he averaged seven and four, and he's only started five games, right? So, and he was 23 at the, during that season. So again, you're starting to think, okay, well, he's going to get better, but how much better is he going to be able to get? And then you're looking around at the rotation, what kind of opportunity is available to him? And there was vets everywhere. So you're thinking, okay, this guy might get squeezed a little bit. He might not be a major priority. Um, instead, he had one of the most impressive breakthroughs uh, by any player. Uh, last year I think he's got himself uh, you know he's getting comparisons from the Raptors fans to like a young Giannis which obviously that's a little bit aggressive I think there's people who want to kind of crown him as a Draymond like figure obviously our list has really treated uh, Draymond very very well uh, in previous years uh, you know regularly having him in the top 15 uh, you know type category uh, I'm not sure Pascal's there quite yet, but he is set up this year compared to last year to just have a monster individual season in, in Toronto and to really, really get a lot of attention. Like it would not surprise me at all uh, if he made the all-star team this year. In fact, like if I had to bet on any of their players to make it uh, up there in Toronto, I would assume that it would be him. Uh, he should have, you know, a greater scoring role. Now that may, you know, lead to some dips in efficiency. Um, but we also just know about him. Like he's just so hungry defensively and he's covers so much ground and he's got a lot of intelligence behind what he's doing that he's going to be making a huge impact even if he struggles a little bit with the increased offensive burden uh so to me i think he's going to be making a uh you know pretty aggressive jump uh into next year's list no i think i think definitely so and you know if the question is did we whiff a little bit on you know accurately predicting the most improved player from last year who kind of came out of nowhere and blew the doors off of a lot of you know a lot of people's projections and expectations for not only himself but the Raptors as a whole. I think it's very fair to say we whiffed on that. You know what I love about this, Rob? You've got a lot of condescension and, and defensiveness in your voice. It's great. <laughs> Usually that's my job. I'm glad that you're stepping up to the plate here. I'm trying to be accountable and you're just sending all the criticism right back. That's right. T- termites. It wasn't our fault we didn't see Pascal's breakout coming. I'm sure all of you guys did. Um a couple other ones here real quick. You know, one that made me laugh uh, was that we actually snubbed Danilo Gallinari for like the first time after like five years of having him on the list. And he was injured every single time that we kept him on the list. And I know you're a huge Gallo fan. I mean, I'm sorry. I I don't remember specifically, but I'm betting nine, you know, nine, nine out of 10 that I was the one who was talking you out of having Gallinari on this year's list because of all the injury concerns. What do you know? He stays pretty healthy. He almost has an all-star level season for the Clippers. They have a dream year um, and he has his best season in like five or six years. So uh, how much did it hurt to realize when you were looking back that your man Gallo was not on the list? It was really painful. I mean, I think it goes to, you know, don't apologize, stick to your guns, you know, whatever your, your, (laughs) your ideals or your morals are really commit to them and dig in and never give up because the second you do, Danilo Gallinari is going to have a career year into his thirties after, you know, a pretty rocky recent injury history. And, And I think that's definitely what scared us off was the idea that like, what if this is just a guy who plays 40 to 50 games for a lot of his career going forward? That seemed like a pretty real, and maybe it is still a realistic possibility, but without, I remember at one point I was just like thinking he was just playing a EuroLeague schedule for an NBA team. Like he had just decided that 82 games was like too many for him personally. I mean, I'm like being sarcastic here, but that's kind of what it felt like. It's just like, all right, over in Europe, they're only playing half as many as we play. So that's what I'm going to commit to for this year. And you know, not to make light, he's had some very serious injury issues and his comeback to me was very unexpected and very impactful. I mean, I think when you look at the Tobias Harris trade mid-season, I think a lot of people focus from the Clippers perspective on like, um, 
okay, well, how much is he really contributing to the winning, right? Like, are the main drivers, guys like Lou Williams, Montrez Harrell, like having the, the highest scoring bench in the league and all of that. So maybe Tobias Harris is expendable, especially if you're getting back like a really good value, uh, you know, package. But I think like lost in that was Gallo could do some of the stuff that Tobias was doing and he was playing great. Uh, and so maybe Tobias got a little bit more attention earlier in the season, but uh, it wasn't exactly like a major position of need for LA. No, I, I think in general, as kind of an NBA media body, we're very bad at, you know, assigning credit to these teams that are a little bit more balanced. You know, we're so used to looking at a team with one or two superstars and saying like, okay, this is, you know, watch Russell Westbrook tonight on ESPN. Like, it's just kind of the way we frame a lot of that conversation. And so when teams like the Clippers kind of surprise us and catch us off guard a little bit, we kind of cling to one idea of what that team is. And it's like, oh, this is, you know, oh, Tobias Harris is finally kind of getting it all together. Look how good he is. Or even, like, look how, you know, Lou Williams having another really, you know, terrific year this late in his career. What a great story. And I think Gallo kind of got caught between that in some ways where he was, I don't think he was many people's idea of like who the Clippers best player was, even though he may have been that whole time kind of hiding in plain sight. And some of that is just a fault on kind of how we put together the story of trying to understand these teams. And some of it is the fact that, you know, Gallo's game is pretty subtle. I think if you're, if you're watching the Clippers when they had all three of those guys, or even after they traded Harris, he may not jump out to you as like, oh, that is such an obvious star, but he's so good at so many different things, and especially in a league where he kind of pans out as being one of the better stretch bigs in the league, and certainly a guy who can still, you know, if you can both shoot the three as a four or a five, but also put the ball on the floor and attack the basket, run some pick and roll, you know, have all of these different elements of your game, and you also don't like command the ball and require an offense to be oriented around you, that's a really important player to have. Very, very well said. Um, on some of these other players who we didn't have on last year's list, I'm just going to read a couple names and feel free to hop on any of these guys. Uh, we did not have De'Aaron Fox. I know we debated him quite a bit. We just thought he wasn't quite ready to make the jump uh, because of his poor rookie season results. Uh, or maybe poor is too strong, but, you know, questionable rookie season results. We did not have Malcolm Brogdon, who I think was, uh, you know, he had some injury issues for Milwaukee, but he was an unsung hero uh, for the Bucks all season long gave them some good postseason minutes and then got a real big cash out this summer. We did not have D'Angelo Russell, which I uh, know angered a lot of people at this time last year. And then we did not have Gallinari's Clippers teammate, uh, Montrez Harrell, who to me was another one that kind of hurts because I really liked Harrell the previous season and he blossomed into exactly the player I hoped he would be. Uh, it was one that, uh, you know, I probably should have been on uh, a little bit, uh, you know, more aggressively last year to make sure he was on the list. Uh, but nonetheless, from that group, uh, you know, whether it's some younger players, guys who are, you know, really made a name for themselves last season, does anybody pop? Well, I mean, I think Fox jumps out because part of the experience of watching him last season was how unexpected it was. It was because he made up so much ground so quickly in terms of his decision making that all of a sudden he's like one of the most electric players in the league. And so I think that's kind of part of his story and his development at this point. Not to just kind of like try to defend our ranking, uh, but I think his his growth in terms of how he reads the game from year one to year two was a really significant, substantial thing. And like maybe we should have seen that coming based off you know some you know late season glimpses in his rookie year or what have you. But to me, it was even more enjoyable to watch him not expecting that. And I think you know D'Angelo Russell is another one that kind of jumped out to me. And I think in his case, it's. You know, some young players, and I think in particular those who have kind of screwed up in a really flagrant and obvious way, 
just have a different burden of proof in terms of establishing themselves as winning players. And I think there's a lot of evidence to suggest that D'Angelo could score and that he could, you know, he could do some stuff with the ball, you know, pretty solid passer, could be an interesting piece for an offense. There just wasn't a lot of data to suggest that he was actually a helpful, productive player in a winning sense at that point. And then on top of that, you have all of these questions concerning, you know, like what do his teammates think of him? What does he do to a locker room when you drop him in there? Not because he's a bad person necessarily, but because he has all this baggage from his time with the Lakers. And he was, I remember him being a very complicated guy to rank and someone who probably ended up moving around a lot, whether he was, you know, up in the 80s or 70s at one point and ended up, you know, slipping out or slipping off the list uh, because of some particular criteria we were discussing. But he's, you know, he's obviously going to be on the list this year based on his growth last season, based on, you know, being able to prove it in a different kind of situation. And sometimes it's really that simple. And, you know, you see, you know, young players on bad teams and it's hard to properly calibrate what they're doing relative to players on other teams who have actual stakes their seasons. I really dislike his game. I thought he was one of the most overrated players in the NBA last year, but I will say it. We needed to have him on the list. We screwed that one up. He, he should have been on there. Going back to Fox real quick, you know, one comp that he always gets, uh, you know, mentioned with is John Wall. And I think that was a guy I was looking at with Fox to try to kind of predict what his uh, you know, progression, early career progression was going to look like. And John Wall's second season, I just remember this stat has always stuck with me. He shot three for 42 for the entire season, his second year at the NBA. He averaged like 16 and eight. Uh, you know, he was, you know, established as like their starting point guard, kind of the man in Washington. Um, but I just remember you know, that that kind of scarred me. It's like, okay, he comes in as a non-shooter. He comes in as this incredible end-to-end athlete, a guy who can get uh, where he wants off the dribble, maybe has some control issues. Uh, you know, he's a high-ranked uh, you know prospect coming out of high school, goes to Kentucky. Like, all of those things apply to De'Aaron Fox. So I think in my mind, I was really cautious about the shooting aspect of Fox thinking like look he's just not going to figure it out by year two Wall was a complete train wreck from that standpoint and uh, you know Fox is just not going to get there and I think what we did see uh, in addition to him understanding how to run an offense a little bit better um, was just you know more respectable three-point shooting and that goes a long way it makes everybody else's life easier and it kind of sets that team up to have a really clear and a pretty functional offensive identity going forward um, I'm pretty high on the Kings heading into next season. Like, I'm not getting out of control, not getting crazy, uh, but I think Fox has another you know jump up for sure coming this year. Uh, and I think uh, you know he's one that he should have been on last year's list as well. Okay, I'm going to give you some of the guys that we overrated, uh, and give me your thoughts just as we're going through some of these. I mean, honestly, a couple of them really jump out. We had Chris Paul at number eight. Uh, I think that one's pretty defensible at the time. I think. You know, during stretches of last season, he was probably still a top 15 level player, even though he maybe didn't get credit for that. But when you look at the whole body of work, the injuries, um, you know, the, the personality conflict that wound up, you know, being Houston's undoing, that one looks pretty rough. Yeah, I mean, I think during the regular season, especially, and in some stages in the playoffs too. You know, Chris Paul is still such an important player for the Rockets in terms of, you know, going back to the kind of who he makes better conversation. I think a lot of, you know, parts of that team really resonate more with Paul's playing style than Harden's, which is a weird thing considering that Harden is obviously, you know, the focal point there. But I think Paul still has a, a really profound effect on, the, you know, the players around him. I think he still creates a lot of really good opportunities. It's just like he's just not as fast as he used to be. He's still a really competitive defender. He's still really productive in certain ways, but... 
His production is starting to drip a little, you know, to to dip a little bit, and uh, he's just not able to cover ground in quite the same way. He's not able to turn the corner in quite the same way, and that's, I mean, that's really going to cost him going forward for sure. Hey guys, what's up? This is Ben Golliver with Sports Illustrated's Open Floor Podcast. Keeping a healthy lifestyle should be easy, right? You eat veggies, drink green smoothies, exercise to get your heart rate up, and do yoga to bring your heart rate down. Woo. Well, maybe not so easy, but there is something that helps improve everything, and you can do it with your eyes closed. It's sleep. Sleep Number knows what it takes to sleep your best. The Sleep Number 360 Smart Bed lets you choose your ideal firmness, comfort, and support on each side, your Sleep Number setting. It's the perfect solution for couples. These beds are so smart, they respond to your every move and automatically adjust to keep you sleeping comfortably all night. Proven quality sleep is life-changing sleep. And now, for a limited time during the Memorial Day sale, save $1,000 on the new Sleep Number Special Edition Smart Bed, a queen now for only $17.99. You'll only find Sleep Number at Sleep Number stores or by visiting www.sleepnumber.com. That's www.sleepnumber.com. Uh, a couple of guys, you know, injury related. We had John Wall at 24. You know, of course, we didn't see, you know, his career coming to a screeching halt. We had Gordon Hayward at, at 25. Uh, you know, certainly that one looks really rough in hindsight. Uh, we also had Dirk Nowitzki at 96. And I think, you know, we were hanging on and kind of thinking with our hearts, maybe than our heads on that one. Um, all those guys to me, uh, you know, they, they were way overrated. I do think we maybe bought into a little bit too much of this Boston Celtics mystique. You know, I come on here every week and kind of make fun of the Celtics fans and and how their media is kind of like North Korea and all that. Uh, we had Jason Tatum at 39, Gordon Hayward at 25. Uh, that did not happen, Rob. They, they did not play like top 40 guys. Not at all. And both of their situations are so interesting, too, in terms of the kind of compounding factors there where... You know, for Hayward, you obviously have him coming off of a big injury. With Tatum, you have him coming into the season with, let's say, some misplaced priorities in terms of what kind of player he should be. And then compounding that, you have whatever it is that, you know, the kind of general weirdness that seeped into Boston's locker room last year. And so kind of parsing those things out is tough in terms of figuring out what kind of players they're going to be going forward. You know, Hayward's, in theory, another year removed from his injury, but is he ever going to be even remotely the same kind of player again? We don't know. You know, Tatum has a, a you know a, a way to kind of refresh and, and wipe the slate in a certain sense, but maybe we were a little bit too gung ho on the idea of what kind of player he could be. You know, the kinds of steps he could take. Maybe he's one of these guys who has a little bit of a slower developmental curve than we may have thought. And so, you know, I, I think we definitely bought into the Celtics pretty hard, and I think for good reason given the amount of talent there. But maybe we we underestimated the the complexity of working together with so many other high level players and what that might mean for those two. For sure. Now, one Celtic who I thought we actually did a pretty good job on would be Kyrie Irving. Now, remember debating like Damian Lillard versus Kyrie Irving versus Kyle Lowry versus John Wall. I mean, I feel like that every year, that's a long, long, intensive debate. Uh, We wound up having Damian at 15, I think arguably a little bit underrated there. Kyrie Irving at 17, Kyle Lowry at 23, John Wall at 24. I feel like we got the order right. Maybe not exactly where the guys needed to be, but when we're looking at that that batch of point guards, uh, I, that was one where I wanted to pat myself on the back. Like you know, having Dame over Kyrie—that's one that people love to debate on Twitter, and you can really make the argument depending on what kind of flavor of point guard you want. Uh, but I think with the playoff performance from Lillard, uh, the playoff performance from Kyrie, 
the fact that you know Lillard to me got the most out of the talent that was on his roster and, and the kind of the opposite was true for Kyrie Irving uh, I was feeling pretty good about how we handled those guys I think that you know as we talked about there have been plenty of misses plenty of miscalculations in terms of how some guys were ranked I feel pretty good about that and, and that's one where Honestly, Kyrie, the conversation around him is is pretty thorny in terms of people, you know, what they think of him, how good they think he is, whether he's, you know, you'll find some as far as like a top five or top 10 kind of player, some who are probably a little closer to us. He's a guy I feel pretty good over the years about how we estimated him. I'm not sure he's made us look bad quite yet. Um, and I do think he still played, you know, throughout the regular season, he was clearly a top 20 guy. And there's an argument that he was even, you know, a top 12 guy at certain points of the regular season. Uh, but it's a consistency factor. It's, you know, lifting it in the postseason, making your teammates better, all those kinds of things uh, definitely held him back. Okay, a couple of uh, goofball ones before we get into the, the conversation about 2020. I mean, we took so much heat for Devin Booker at 50 and Brandon Ingram at 75. And I want to ask you this. Did we actually overrate both of those players? <laughs> are we to- are we totally sure Devin Booker was a fiftieth be- a top fifty player last year, and are we totally sure Brandon Ingram was a top seventy five player once you take into account the injuries? I think it's quite possible that we were pessimistic on two young guys, and we should have been even more pessimistic on both of them. It's definitely possible. I mean, honestly, Devin Booker is is kind of the the player that the basketball internet deserves. You know, he has this game that's like, I think, very tailor-made for for the Instagram era, where you're just kind of watching him cross some dude up, and you keep scrolling, and it's on to the next one. But he also... Careful, Rob. You're starting (laughs) to sound like an old guy like me, okay? You're younger than I am. Like, I mean, if you're leaning into it, I'm good with it. I'm completely fine with it. But when you start saying tailor-made for the Instagram era, the millennials are going to come for you. It's true. It's true. But, I mean... He has these skills, I think, that align with superstars in a very specific aesthetic way. And he he looks like a superstar. And he also has these limitations that if you watch him for full games, they just like scream out in terms of the things he either won't do or can't do. And so, I, you know, we talked about him a lot. We talked about him a lot with Sharp, too. And I think he's one of these players who he really is kind of a mirror. And that makes him really controversial, as we've seen this week with his, you know, kind of pickup escapades. But it's like how you feel about Devin Booker really does kind of say something about you. And then people get really testy in that conversation because they realized you're kind of like fighting over the values of basketball when we talk about Devin Booker for some reason. Yeah, I know. And I think for people who are willing to fight us over that, just get better values. I mean, come on, like <laughs> come over up. to the good side. It, it's okay to be right. Um, you no, know, last year he had a pretty rough season. I mean, obviously people are going to focus on the career high 26.6 points as people are wants to do. But I mean, 33% three-point shooting on pretty high volume. Uh, you know, you look at uh, he misses nearly 20 games, uh, you know, probably some, you know, tanking related, but also some injury related as well. Um, you know, he doesn't really make any substantial progress defensively. They don't make any substantial progress in the standings. Another coach is in and out, um, and their culture remains as bad as it's always been, and he's their best player. I think people do forget. I mean, he's entering year five now, right? So be the change you want to be. If you want to be a top 50 level player, you can't be this, uh, you know, team that's just never relevant. That's always in this conversation of, are they going to be the worst team in in the Western conference, uh, with him as their main guy? Uh, you know, he got lots of reps, you know, no question about it. He got his assist numbers up. You know, there's no doubt there. I think he has taken steps forward as a playmaker, uh, but he needs to do even more. Uh, I'm not even going to say anything about the pickup stuff. I thought that was a little bit, uh, I actually felt bad for him. I'm not totally sure that should have hit the internet. Uh, that seems like it, it should have been, you know, kept be- between friends, but, uh, what are you going to do? Um, 
Well, let me just say this too as a counterpoint on the Booker thing, kind of pushing back against ourselves a little bit. I think there is an argument to be made that in the years we've made this list, maybe we've overvalued defense. Maybe the NBA really is a league where, you know, if you're looking at kind of the the proportionality of value, it's more of like a 60-40 or a 65-35 in terms of, you know, favoring offense over defense. Maybe it really is that kind of sport. And I think there are a lot of cases you could point to, whether it's Harden or Curry or these guys who extract, you know, have an incredible impact on the game, but aren't really good defenders. And I think, you know, Booker is kind of in a different category in that it's not like he's a, you know, so-so defender or like kind of lacking in some ways, but like an actively bad one. Uh, and so maybe that is more, you know, a different kind of phase of conversation than those other guys. But I, I think there is an argument to be made that like, if you have a guy who can create shots at a certain level, who can knock down difficult ones. And a guy, I mean, in, in Booker, a guy who is improving in terms of his true shooting, in terms of his shot creation, and obviously, you know, was asked to to run a lot of kind of point, point uh, responsibility for them last year, that maybe that kind of player is more valuable than the number 50 player, for example. But uh, I think you have to make some. You have to kind of factor in your assumptions in terms of how much you really care about defense if you're going to get to that point. That was very well said, but let's not go too far here, Rob. I mean, yes, he's improved as a distributor and as a playmaker. Okay, he led the 28th the best offense. He led the Suns past the Bulls and the Knicks. Okay, congratulations. Um, I, look, we hear from the Booker fans; they're the loudest and angriest and most vitriolic individual player fan base um, on the globe. I feel very, very good about how we ranked him on last year's list. And, you know, given the health concerns and kind of the stagnation, um, I think there's pretty big questions about how much can he really move up, you know, and how close has he gotten to be the player uh, that that he is. Now, he's still very, very young. I understand that. I still think he's got all-star potential because of the scoring ability that you've talked about. Um, But he is still in that, that zone for me where it's like, prove it. You have so many things to prove. Please prove any of them so that we can start to have a different conversation about you. All right. I think that's it for 2019. Um, let's jump forward here to some big picture questions about uh, this upcoming list. I'm, I'm sure you guys are going to put yours up probably in September, uh, the top 100 players of 2020. And I'm going to throw this one to you. How many players do you have in the mix for the number one spot? And I'm assuming you're not going to have Kevin Durant on the list at all because he's injured uh, or anticipated to miss all of next season. I think for sure he would have been in the conversation if he had been healthy. But how many guys do you have in the in the mix for that spot, Rob? And, and no spoilers. You don't have to tell me where you're going with it. Um, you know, even though it does seem like this could be the first year that LeBron gives up the uh, the number one throne in a really long time. How many guys are you debating? Well, I think there's kind of like the big picture conversation and then kind of the narrower conversation, right? Like just like MVP voting, it's like on first pass, you know, you have a five-man ballot for MVP. Maybe you're thinking about 10 or 12 players in terms of what you're really looking at, the guys you really want to drill in on and see like, is this guy a credible, does he have a credible case to be, you know, fifth on my MVP ballot? And I think in terms of that bigger conversation, I think there are basically five guys. And it's LeBron, who, you know, has been our number one for, for years and years, Kawhi. Giannis, Curry, and James Harden. And I think the narrower conversation Ooh. is probably three guys. And we can leave it to the imagination a little bit in terms of who those three guys are. But I'm sure we can talk about some of the specifics player to player and, and maybe the listeners can kind of surmise who those three might be. Oh, we're not leaving anything to the, uh, the imagination. We're going to dig in here. So let me uh, first you know, do the most annoying thing ever, which would be, why are you snubbing Anthony Davis? 
why are you snubbing Joel Embiid? Why are you snubbing uh, Nikola Jokic? Like, why do you not see those guys as being in, in conversation here? I mean, we also snub like Joe Ingles and PJ Tucker. You know, there are a lot of guys who I think have been <laughs> okay. snubbed from this conversation. Um, these bright lines in terms of like the tiers of stardom are always very tricky. I think to me, it, you know, I think Harden has kind of put himself into this conversation in a way that's different from someone like Davis, for example. I mean, just the sheer volume of what he's able to accomplish and I think Davis is a guy who on paper could have some of the the qualities that you would look for in a potential number one player in the league, but obviously just kind of detonated his team last season, which I think has to be taken into account. And historically, it's been something we always have in terms of if you're, you know, you go out kind of Jimmy Butler style and demand a trade and hold your team hostage or Kyrie Irving style. And, you know, there's just kind of this weird funk surrounding your presence on this particular team. Like that has to be a demerit against you, and so no, that's a that's a great point. Like we watched the Anthony Davis act for the last five or six months. I mean, it was a train wreck at times. You cannot turn right around and be like, okay, you're the number one player. It just doesn't work. Like I mean, you completely sabotaged the Pelicans franchise. They got so lucky to get that number one pick. Otherwise, the stories that we would be writing about the Pelicans would be so so dark, and it sabotaged the Lakers too. And I think um, you know he does have to own that for a little bit. Now it does, he doesn't have to own that forever. There's a possibility he has a Kawhi type of uh, rejuvenation in terms of his reputation, you know, coming up this season where he's, you know, set in a winning environment. He's, you know, playing with a, a superstar in LeBron James. He's able to make a deep postseason run, put up MVP kind of numbers, uh, you know, and really expand his off-court image as well. All those things I think would help him in this kind of a conversation. But yeah, you're right. There's no way you could put Anthony Davis in this combo. Um, is it a similar deal with Embiid and, and Jokic where you just want to see more postseason success or what is it about those guys? Yeah, I mean, I think it's postseason success. I think with Embiid, the injury questions are always there. And in addition to the conditioning questions, as far as like, if that guy comes in and plays in shape for a full year, maybe he looks like a totally different kind of player. But he's he takes his conditioning maybe a little less seriously than some of these other guys who operate at the yeah. highest levels. And, and that's a red flag right there, too. If you have to ask the question, hey, if he comes into the season and stays in shape for the entire year, okay, you're already out, right? Like, I mean, the margin for error here at the number one spot in the league is too small. So if you're already asking that question, forget about it. Yeah, and I think he has the problem, too, where, you know, if we're talking about are you the best player in the league, one of the questions that inevitably comes up is, like, how do you deal with double teams? How do you deal with playoff teams scheming around you and pressuring you in ways you might not expect? And Embiid is one of these guys who throws a lot of wild passes when he's passing out of those situations, who is a very high turnover player for his position, who makes some kind of silly mistakes in terms of like trying to make some pretty flashy post moves, you know, like triple faking and, and you know trying to dream shake everybody. He's one of these guys who does kind of get in over his head at times in ways that if you're talking, if you know, if, if the comparison point is what LeBron has been for the past five years. That's a really tough point of comparison for a guy like Embiid. And I think, yeah, Jokic is, is kind of a different element of this conversation where you do want to see just a little bit more in terms of the playoff success. You want to see a little bit more in terms of the way he's tested in postseason scenarios because, as we talked about, he, I think, aced his first run through the playoffs. He did, played about as well as you could possibly expect him to. But there's a difference between that and saying, oh, he's definitely better than Kawhi Leonard, for example. For sure. Before we break down the top four or five guys, uh, I we need to do a little interlude, Rob. I mean, I need to really need to bear my heart and soul here. Please. As painful as it was to watch Kevin Durant toss away the next couple of his years uh, of his career with Kyrie Irving, I've got to say, I think I was waiting longer and more patiently for the coronation of Kevin Durant as the number one player in basketball 
than anyone else on the planet, right? Like I brought it up in last year's debate. I was very close to kind of twisting your arm into having him at number one. We had talked about Kevin as a possible number one guy probably for the last three years, uh, you know, to various degrees of uh, seriousness. I remember even writing two years ago uh, how he had done so much with his first finals victory to kind of put himself into that conversation. To realize that he's not in it this year when it's probably you know his chair to sit in, and not only that, but he may never, ever sit in that number one spot because of the nature of his injury and because of these other younger players coming through in their primes uh, and having a chance to put their stamp on the league. That's sad, man. That one, it hurts a little bit. It, it hits the soul. You know what I mean? It's like, this is a guy who's been waiting. You know, He told Sports Illustrated Lee Jenkins years and years ago, I'm sick of being second. He gets his titles, no question about it, but he never got that validation as the best player in basketball and it's possible that, you know, the window is closed before it ever opened. I really hate it. I mean, you hate it for a guy like that to miss this much time with any kind of significant injury. But this one in particular, and just the way it can alter the trajectory of a career is kind of devastating. And like Durant is, you know, because of his size, because of his shooting, he's going to be a good player. I think, you know, kind of no matter what form he returns in, whenever he eventually he'll be does. An, he'll be an excellent player. But, you know, again, it's like, okay, what's the difference between a top 10 guy or the number one guy? I mean, there's a gap there. And can he be that number one guy? To me, that's a real question. Yeah, and I think especially, you know, as we talk through some of these other candidates who were now forced to consider for number one, Durant was the guy who didn't have any of those questions. You know, he he didn't have any of these demerits or these asterisks that the other candidates have. And I think, like, I was very ready to put him number one coming into this season. Like, I felt like that was a very... Uh, a very solid kind of defensible safe choice given all of the other questions on the board with so many of these other guys and well, to, here's what we should do if you do it i'll do it and then we've got strength in numbers okay <laughs> like no what nobody can attack us if, if you know if we're the consensus here if we just pretend that that finals uh, uh achilles rupture never happened we'll be the nba top 100 tastemakers yet again <laughs> okay uh now you mentioned your five guys lebron Kawhi, Giannis, curry harden the one that jumps to me is Harden. I'm not sure I see a case for him to be in that number one spot. I mentioned the kind of the battle between him and Curry. I would have a really hard time putting him over Curry, given their head-to-head uh, track record You know that goes back years and years. And also, you know, there's something a little bit dangerous about the way Houston reoriented its offense around Harden. I know it was spectacular. I know it served Harden's interest very well. He lived up to the moment. He was an absolutely incredible player last season. Um, and on the open floor, we got so caught up in talking about Giannis that we did not give Harden nearly enough credit. Uh, you know, that being said, you know, if we're talking about throwing him into a vacuum uh, on just a random team and saying, hey, this is the way we're going to play basketball, I think Houston has done such a good job of hand-selecting players who kind of know the deal, you know, what it's about to play with James Harden. I think you'd get some, you know, some locker room issues, some chemistry issues if you just put James Harden onto a random team and said, hey, he gets to have the ball every single time he wants it. You're standing in the corner, you're playing defense, and you're not really doing much of anything else. So from that standpoint, I wonder if, if this conversation is really about four guys rather than about five guys. What do you think? I mean, it definitely could be. I think, you know, Harden is interesting in that way where so much of what he does is kind of independent of other factors where, like, if he's taking and making step-back threes, you know, sure, the spacing helps, having a big, you know, a rim-rolling center helps, but fundamentally that's just him creating against one or even two defenders and making an awesome shot. And that's something that can translate to any team. I think, you know, all of his success kind of working one-on-one is something that could work in a lot of situations. But 
as you mentioned, I think that kind of, you know, whether his teammates know the deal factor is an important part of this conversation because there are a lot of guys in the league who are not willing to play that way. And I think it, it speaks well of kind of the players that the Rockets have pulled into their roster over the years. And, you know, especially this last season where it wasn't just guys, you know, they traded for or they signed, you know, to big free agent deals, but guys they were kind of pulling off the scrap heap, pulling off the waiver wire, trying to fill minutes over the course of a season where they had a lot of injury concerns. And they were still able to find some of those kinds of players who were willing to park themselves in the corner or who were willing to play defense and rebound as their kind of primary jobs. And so Harden is in a peculiar space in that way because he doesn't necessarily, you know, he makes life easy for his teammates in certain ways because they certainly know, like, if you're asking, you know, whether it's P.J. Tucker or even kind of like an Eric Gordon or an Austin Rivers, guys who are creative, but if you overstretch them and ask them to create too much, then all of a sudden they're just very, you know, much more flawed players, very much more limited players, and they kind of show themselves in that way where I think Harden protects them. But I don't think anyone's going to claim that Harden has, you know, a, a Steph Curry-like impact in terms of, you know, running around the floor and all of a sudden a Jordan Bell type has a wide-open dunk. I think Harden's Harden's impact on the game is a little bit more blunt, and as a result of that, I think I think it's fair to really wonder on a deeper level whether he is in this conversation or not. I found the way he kind of pushed the volume and the usage while still being an incredibly efficient player to be pretty compelling. But I think I think it's understandable to have those questions about him as well. For sure. And now you have to wonder, okay, how is sustainable? Is that, uh, you know, can you do that twice? I mean, those are, he was so out of this world last year that you have to expect some level of regression, even, you know, before accounting for sort of the Westbrook factor. Uh, but that was a, you know, a very, you know, detailed and very interesting breakdown on Harden. I'm curious, uh, when you look at the other four guys, maybe let's attack it this way. Like, what do you see as their big weaknesses or like the cases against them as the number one guy? Like, I think for LeBron, it's age and it's like, okay, has he entered a different stage in his career? I think for Kawhi, you know, people are probably going to go to the load management thing. The Clippers swear he's not going to be on as extensive as a load management, uh, you know, type of uh, program as he was last year in Toronto. I think with Curry, it would be the size and potentially, you know, defensive impact uh, would be some questions there, even though I think he's an underrated defensive player still. And then with Giannis, uh, I think the major question most people would go to would be the lack of shooting and, and what does that do, you know, if, if you're the you know primary playmaker. So I laid out sort of like the surface level cases against those four guys. Are you having any other factors that are you know giving you hesitation as you're weighing those guys? You could start with any of those guys. Well, I think the load management conversation is even broader than Kawhi. And I think a lot of, you know, when you're deciding who's in the mix for number one and who ultimately is number one, a lot of it is going to come down to that, where you not only have Kawhi, who, again, played 60 games last year. Maybe he plays 65, maybe he plays 70. I don't think anyone thinks he's going to be pushing for 82. But in terms of how these players are managed with their minutes and with their games played, I think LeBron is entering that stage of his career where he's a guy who it really makes sense to kind of pace him over the course of a regular season. And what does that mean in terms of his top 100 value? And on the very opposite end of the spectrum, you have Giannis, who's playing hard every possession on both sides of the ball. You have James Harden, who's ramping up his usage rates to levels that are kind of you know unseen, maybe even unseemly in the eyes of some, who's really kind unhealthy. of unhealthy. Unhealthy, <laughs> yeah, for sure. And I think, uh, you know, they're kind of really cranking up the opposite end of that argument. And then Curry's kind of the wild card in that, where maybe, you know, for the Warriors in particular, maybe it makes sense for them to kind of pace Curry over the course of the year so they don't kind of run him into the ground. Maybe they should have done that already. And so kind of how you read that part of the conversation 
and whether, you know, I, I think fundamentally, like starting with Kawhi, can the best player in the NBA only play 60 to 65 games in the regular season uh, and still be the best player? Like, can we still think of him as that if he's only playing that much? And how you answer that question, I think, gets you a pretty, you know, pretty far towards a verdict in terms of who the best player actually is. That was very, very well said, Rob. I mean, I think you're you're dead on. It is not just a load management question about Kawhi. All of these guys, their minutes are, are pretty interesting. And Giannis and Harden, I think that the reason why that they surfaced as the top two MVP guys was because they were the guys who just threw caution to the wind. Although Milwaukee did a pretty good job of managing Giannis' Giannis's minutes during the regular season, um, he still had you know every opportunity to put up you know major major numbers, and he was very healthy. And he's kind of at that stage of his career where uh, you expect him to be healthier than these other guys because he's you know three or four years younger than most of them. Um, I'm going to make a prediction on the Giannis front. Either Coach Bud is going to seed the postseason load management stuff that he was, uh, you know, dealing with during last year's playoffs, where he was like kind of consistently keeping Giannis under like 36 minutes, or there will be a confrontation. Okay, now I'm not saying it's going to be like Latrell Sprewell, where Giannis is like got him around the neck, right? But it's either going to be a call out in the media, it's going to be, uh, you know, some sort of a, a screaming match on the bench. Uh, there will be tension this season if Bud does not you know turn Giannis more loose than he did last year because I think uh, the temptation uh, last year maybe was to like not get ahead of themselves to stick to the program to stick to the script but look like Giannis is insanely competitive and imagine like how Michael Jordan or a young LeBron James or a young Kobe Bryant would have handled being limited to you know 32 33 34 35 36 minutes in key moments, you know, during losses, even uh, in, in certain situations, it's just not going to fly. So we're either going to see, uh, you know, uh, an abandonment of the Giannis philosophy from Coach Bud, or we're going to see fireworks. That is my prediction when it comes to the minutes on those guys. Um, all right, here's my number two big picture question for 2020: How many of last year's rookies? will debut on this year's list. And remember, you know, for years past, we don't include guys on this list if they are rookies. So that means, you know, Zion will not be in the mix this season. But last year's rookie class had some really interesting names. Obviously, DeAndre Ayton, Luka Doncic, Marvin Bagley, Trey Young, Jaron Jackson, Mitchell Robinson, you know, kind of the list goes on and on. Wendell Carter, who was injured, uh, Landry Shamit, who had a really nice rookie season, including a trade to the Clippers. So he'll be on a pretty big platform this season. Um, how do you think all those guys I just listed are going to make it? Are there guys who you're feeling definitely deserve to be on it or, or how do you break that down? Well, so I think the Luka Doncic situation is, is its own, like he's in, there's no question about that. Um, Trey Young is kind of in his own category as a guy who is a very impressive offensive player and maybe the worst defensive player in the league and, you know, maybe fairly captured, uh, as that miserable by some defensive metrics. And so, Again, how much does that matter? How, yeah. how much does it matter can, if you Can you're... we underscore that real, <laughs> real quick? 97th in PER for Trey Young. Very respectable as a rookie. 141st in win shares. Very, very respectable as a rookie, especially a guy who's coming in with questions about his size. Per game stats, quite impressive, especially after the All-Star break. Real plus minus, Trey Young ranked 429th. And if you go to like defensive real plus minus, it's even uglier than that. So... Starting from that baseline, where if you're one of these like plus minus guys who just like lives and dies by that stat, the idea that Trey Young would be a top 100 player this year would be 
laughed out of the room, right? Yeah, and I think, I mean, the question with so many young guys, because the story is kind of the same for a lot of them. They come into the league, they start putting up some numbers, they they seem good on a certain kind of paper, and then you look a little deeper and you say, you see, oh, they're actually not really a net positive player yet. You know, whether it's the defense, whether it's the way they're reading, you know, if they're a point guard, kind of how they're running an offense. If it's a big man, maybe they're not screening or boxing out or hustling or offensive rebounding. You know, like there's these little areas of the game where a lot of veteran guys kind of bolster their impact that young guys just don't know how to do yet or aren't familiar with or aren't comfortable with. And I think Young is one of those guys where I think without a doubt, he's going to be a very good point guard. The question is, is that a year two jump? Is that a year three jump? Is that a year four jump in terms of when he finally kind of crosses that threshold into being a really, not only a really productive player, but a really positive player? Man, watching him in the USA basketball minicamp scrimmages, he was one of the most impressive guys on the court to me. Uh, I mean, his command, his slipperiness, getting to his spots, the you know the pull-up stuff, uh, he is a tough tough, tough guy to cover. And I also think it's just hilarious that like the Atlanta Hawks whole roster building strategy right now is just to get as many bodyguards for Trey Young as possible. It's like, (laughs) let's get all the biggest wings who we could turn into like, you know, big time versatile defenders to help cover for this guy. Um, I think it's a very winning strategy. I love what Atlanta has been doing. Um, I think I'm not with the plus minus diehards on this one, right? I think you can make a case that Trey Young um, will be a top 100 player next season. Uh, of course, they're going to have to take some, you know, steps forward from a winning standpoint, and it's going to be tough because they're really, really young. And so, I, I do think he's going to be judged on some of his inexperienced teammates this year, um, which is always a kind of a dicey dynamic. But I keep imagining, like, if you just put him on an average team in terms of talent level and age, and it was like, "Hey, Trey, go run this show," I'm feeling pretty good about that, you know. And and obviously, the Hawks, I think, right now in terms of their collected talent and their their inexperience are below average in both those categories and I do think that's going to kind of rub off on his perception it's also going to set him up to have you know crazy stats that are maybe a little bit inflated uh but to me like you know if you're just picking a random like middle of the pack team uh in either conference and you're saying hey Trey go do it I'm, I'm feeling pretty good man like he was he was that impressive in those scrimmages well I think he does a lot for his teammates too in terms of you know his three-point shooting numbers aren't there yet but he takes a lot of tough shots and I think he commands enough respect from not only the, three, the three-point line but beyond it that he starts to open up some of that space open up some of those lanes kind of contort defenses and stretch out the rotations to make things more difficult that makes again makes life a little bit easier for the guys he works with in addition to you know really being one of the most impressive young passers that we have in the league and so I'm with you in the sense that you know you put the right pieces around him you give him a league, even a league average team where the Hawks have certainly not been that in terms of their caliber of talent and maybe this is a very different conversation maybe maybe the defense really doesn't kind of register in the same way you know, like stats like RPM and defensive RPM, they're trying their best to account for the variables of who you play with and against, but there's a lot of noise there. And they're, they're trying to filter through a lot of it as best as, you know, the, the formulas possibly can, but they're not perfect in terms of capturing that impact. Uh, no defensive metrics that we have, unfortunately, are. It's, it's pretty sloppy and pretty noisy across the board. And so you're using them to try to get a sense of what the full picture might look like. But there's certainly a possibility that Trey Young is is nowhere near that bad of a defender uh, by certain kinds of evaluations and metrics. Yeah, I mean the eye test, he's not. He he's he's struggling there too. You know, and it's I mean it's a size issue. It's a dying on screens type of thing. It's 
just you know pace of the game, which is a standard rookie thing. So there's area for some uh, for some progress, no question. And I think you know, he told me in Vegas he put on like 10 plus pounds of muscle, so that should help. He's really concerned about okay can he absorb contact on the drive when he has the ball and then can he absorb contact when he's you know defending the ball so there's there should be some you know definitely some improvement uh, on both those aspects but you know he's starting from a, a very very low baseline defensively like you're mentioning well you know, let's, let's switch to those let's, bigs though let's Wait. just say this okay. too let's just say this too about team usa that it is an incredible bummer that that team is going to china without either De'Aaron fox or trey young on it like you know, obviously the circumstances are what they are in terms of the best players pulling out, but kind of what made previous Team USA kind of younger versions fun were guys like Kevin Durant having the chance to really show out was giving these young guys a platform and a stage and the fact that, you know, two of the, the most interesting young guards in the league aren't going to be a part of that. And Kemba Walker is obviously great. You know, you got Donovan Mitchell in there, so you have some of this kind of quotient accounted for, but that would have been a really fun way to watch either Trey Young or De'Aaron Fox kind of kick up their game a little bit. No doubt. The De'Aaron Fox withdrawal was such a bummer. I wonder if that was just how Popovich was handling his his cut situation, like wanting to bring guys to Australia without making cuts. It's just a little bit awkward. That might have played a factor. I almost wondered, though, like, should some of these more offensive-minded guys – you know, the, the less disciplined discipline players of the world, like Darren Fox and Trey Young, should they have seceded from the union, like sort of like <laughs> Texas always wants to do? And rather than playing for USA Basketball, maybe Mike D'Antoni could have like a Rebels uh, Team USA with just like all the guys who would be amazingly fun to watch. We could send them over to the World Cup and add a little spice. What do you think? This is an incredible idea. I can't believe we've never thought of the secession dream team before, but we really need <laughs> to put it together. Well, look, this is what people are listening for in, in the heart of August. These great million-dollar ideas. Okay, guys, let me know. I'm available if you want to hear a, a deeper pitch on that. Let's switch, though, real quick to the bigs from the rookie class because there's some tricky calls, man. Like Mitchell Robinson, just incredible block rate, horrible team. Discipline is not necessarily there. I mean, jumps on everything. Minutes weren't huge as a rookie. You got... Jaron Jackson, who gets injured, and, and the advanced stats really like him early, but then he misses like half the season. You've got Aiton, who, you know, the box score stats and losses are there. I mean, he's a classic, you know, great stats, terrible team type of guy. Uh, the plus minus doesn't necessarily love him. And then you've got Bagley, where it's kind of the same deal. He he starts to look really comfortable as the season goes on. He's definitely got some, uh, you know, athleticism and, and offensive tools around the basket. Um, but you know, once again, the defensive stuff is holding him behind. Um, are there any guys who you're definitely ruling in or ruling out from that, uh, that crop of big men? I mean, I think the three most compelling cases for the big men are Aiton, Mitchell Robinson, and Jaron Jackson. I think those are the three guys who have a real shot who, whether it's, you know, the way that they've kind of been able to turn the corner over the course of their rookie years and kind of, you know, really develop from game one to game 82, whether it's the idea that, you know, Jackson could come in and be a different kind of player in year two, even more assertive offensively, has some potential to do that where he's already, you know, pretty precocious defensively, but is going to settle into that part of his game even more. Mitchell Robinson was such like a, a kind of mid-season, late-season player of intrigue that, you know, maybe over the course of, of, of a full season, he's able to get, you know, a little bit more of that discipline you were talking about, whether he, you know, he's coached to stay down a little bit more, to foul a little bit less. Uh, but it's so interesting in the way that he not only blocks shots, but blocks threes. Like he's, he's one of the best at closing out among centers in the league in terms of the perimeter play, which I'm not sure there's a more important skill for a big man in the modern NBA than that. So those are the three guys, I think, among the bigs that really sing out. I mean, 
Marvin Bagley's maybe on the cusp of that conversation. And as a 20-year-old, I don't think that's an insult to say that. And maybe let's just say this again for the people in the back. Like, just because a guy on your favorite team is not a top 100 player is not an indictment of who they are or their game. It doesn't mean that we don't think that they're good. It doesn't mean that we don't think they're going to be very good in time. But the reality is that a lot of young players just don't have this kind of credibility and this kind of track record yet. And so these lists are going to skew a little bit more veteran, going to skew a little bit older, because those are the guys who have proven that they can actually contribute to productive winning teams versus some of these guys who are younger and on bad teams. No, I mean, I love it. You're just up here, you know, it's like the Iowa State Fair, and you're just addressing the open floor globe. Everybody, just chill out, man. You know, pay attention. You got your stump speech. It's great. Um, I think that what you just said specifically applies to young bigs, doesn't it? Because, you know, we've seen usually it's like three or four years before guys really get to where, I mean, you can start to see what they're going to look like before they can really be that guy night in and night out and really have that positive impact. And all of those guys that you mentioned are extraordinarily young. Um, and, you know, they all have a lot of room to improve um, and it could take some time. I mean, even Jaron Jackson, I mean, lots of foul trouble last year, right? Discipline issue uh, for him was there. Aiton made some progress defensively as the season wore on, but, you know, still to me, a very, very exploitable player. And then Mitchell Robinson, you know, it's one of those guys where you can break it down in the, in the small number sample size. Uh, you know, the, the per 36 numbers look amazing, but, you know, basketball isn't necessarily a per 36 sport. Like it's 82 games, it's 48 minutes. What can you do? So I think there's reason for caution on all of those guys. Um, but uh, you know, maybe the guards have a little bit of a leg up. And I agree 100% on Doncic. Um you know, actually looking at his stats, though, I was a little surprised because last year when we were sort of asked about where we would put Doncic, I want to say that we were sort of estimating right around like 40, 50s, um, like if, if he was on the list as a rookie. Um, but when I went to go look at his stats, you know, he's 51 in player efficiency, 91 in win shares, 86 in real plus minus. So I think that's a good reminder that sometimes maybe the hype uh, or the you know, the box score stats on young guys maybe is a little bit ahead of where their actual impact is. And that, you know, just kind of a, a reinforcement where I think you and I try to check how we rank young players a little bit, uh, you know, more aggressively than some other t- people who rank them, just wanting them to prove it, wanting them to show that gradual development um, like if you could go back and do it over, like, where do you think Luca deserves to be ranked for last season? I mean, to me, I, I'm not sure he was in that forties mix quite yet. I think I would still have him in that range. And a lot of it is just because it's so hard to run an offense as a rookie to manage all of these different players around you and their expectations, get guys the right number of shots. And I think Luca and Trey young in particular did such a good job of that last year at different stages in the season. And maybe you could take that into you know kind of your narrative considerations, whether it's Trey Young, you know, building over the course of the year, and maybe that means he's only going to go onward and upward from there. For Luca, you know, kind of maybe running into the wall a little bit, whether he ran out of gas from a conditioning standpoint, whatever it is you want to assign as the reason why that happened, defense is adapting to him, him needing to adjust to, you know, the pacing of the NBA schedule. I think all those things are worth thinking about. But for Luca, it's you know, this is a great shot creator, a great young shot creator who sees things that other players don't, who rebounds at a really high level, who is big, like, I mean, big for a wing, whether we're talking about kind of strong and stocky, and also just kind of the height he plays with and how difficult that is to account for. I think he is a pretty special prospect in that way. And now does that mean he's ever going to be a top 10 player? Maybe not. But I think in terms of where he is now, 
he's, I think he's already kind of put himself into that conversation of whether you're talking about top 50 or top 40, you know, maybe even in the 30s. Um, I think he's he's kind of in that group for me. Do you see him as an all-star this year? I think it's going to be, it's easy to imagine a scenario where he's boxed out and maybe it comes down to how good are the Mavericks by the time the voting comes in because, you know, they're kind of like six playoff lock teams, I think, health permitting in the West this year. And then those last two spots, it's going to be, you know, the Pelicans and Spurs and the Mavs, the Kings, who we've talked about a little bit uh, in the running for that. Maybe, you know, maybe another team or two, I'm forgetting. Timberwolves are probably there too. And so if the Mavericks are like head and shoulders above some of the other teams in that group and they look really good, um, you know, all the you know, he, he and uh, Daylon Ryder playing really well together. He and Seth Curry are playing really well together. Uh, Chris Stapps has been, you know, integrated really effectively. I could see a scenario where that happens for sure. Yeah, I could see him being an Eastern Conference All-Star, not a Western Conference All-Star. I think he's right in that kind of dreaded dead zone that have claimed, you know, many players along over the years, whether it's CJ McCollum or Mike Conley. I feel like that's sort of where he's going to land this year. I hope he proves me wrong. I love watching him play. I think he's very exciting. I think uh, they're setting things up very nicely for him there in Dallas. I just think he's going to come up short this year. Okay, the last and most important question, Rob. Hypothetically speaking, if Zion Williamson, the number one pick in this year's draft, was eligible for the top 100 of 2020, where would you place him? How aggressive would you get with the Zion hype? Now, remember, I mean, he blows the doors off of all the college advanced uh, stats, you know, PER. I mean, he's just breaking the calculators in college, but he blew out the shoe, so he got injured. Then, uh, you know, he winds up not winning the title, uh, which I don't know how much you would care about that. But then he goes to summer league. He makes it eight minutes. Uh, he has four dunks. He gets a shot blocked by Mitchell Robinson, who you mentioned earlier, you know, the, the three-point shot blocking wizard. Uh, he, he falls victim to that. And then he's just done for summer league because of, uh, you know, a minor injury again. So when you're looking at all the factors, whether it's health, whether it's ability to have immediate impact, two-way play, does he have a position, can he shoot, all those kinds of questions. Where are you putting Zion Williamson? Ben, I hate to do this to you, but I feel woefully ill-equipped to answer this question. As someone who has seen precious little of Zion actually playing basketball, uh, this is tricky and maybe irresponsible uh, uh, for me to even uh, oh. try. Breaking news, we have our first NBA analyst who does not have Zion takes. Wow, <laughs> this is this is crazy. We, we're always going into new uncharted territory uh, here on the Open Floor Podcast. No, I hear you. I mean, this is, look, I'm setting you up to fail. There's no doubt about it. I'm just curious, I guess, you know, for somebody who doesn't follow college very carefully, like how deep are you into the Zion hype machine? Because I have been swallowed whole, okay? All I needed to do was see him play like less than a minute at Cameron to see all the kids just like, you know, dancing around like crazy, chanting his name, the you know, 360 dunks off the backboard during warmups. Uh, I mean, just the charisma that he's got off the court, how he handled himself during draft week in New York City, like... I'm basically head over heels over for this guy. And yet every time I go to see him play in person, he doesn't make it more than five minutes into the game. Right. <laughs> so it's a real, uh, you know, philosophical quandary that I'm in. Uh, but you know, what do you think? I mean, how in are you on Zion? I'm, I'm very in. Uh, and, and some of that is like, he kind of speaks to where I live as a, as a basketball observer. And, and in some respects, it's like somebody who plays pickup, like big guys who kind of think they're point guards and also fit this, like, you know, maybe he's on like a Draymondy type track. 
Like, I think you could look at our top 100 over the years and see how we feel about those kinds of players. These guys who are, you know, like very quick on their feet, but also strong and smart uh, in terms of how they approach the game, whether it's Draymond or Thaddeus Young or kind of anything in between. Like, these are players who kind of really speak to me. And so the idea that you could have that guy and he also be, you know, the best athlete and somehow also like the heaviest player in the league at the same time is one of the great science experiments of our day. And so... I'm very curious to see how he does. I can't wait to watch him play against pro-level competition. Um, you know, in, in terms of, like, ranking a young player, it's always going to come down to, like, where their defensive baseline is, I feel like, because, as we mentioned, like, he can come in and produce. He can come in and, and get some points and get some rebounds and blocks and steals. Like, he's going to put up some numbers. Whether he's, like, a, you know, pre, pre-assembled kind of NBA defender is probably going to be the variable point, variable point in terms of where he would be potentially ranked. But, I mean, he looks like a hell of a player to watch. And I'm not sure I would be as interested if he were just, like, another really good point guard or another really good wing. It's like this specific kind of player he is 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 just locked and loaded for the type of, of basketball that's played in the NBA right now. No, he's a game-breaker. I mean, that's that's the fascinating part. It's like, okay, yeah, this is one of one. Um, I, I can't wait to see it. So just for, like, comparison's sake, like, Julius Randle last year, we had at 72 – um, I know he's been compared by like people who are Zion skeptics will just say, oh, well, he's basically Julius Randle. I, I think that Zion will have uh, a better defensive impact as a rookie than Julius Randle had last season when he was putting up huge numbers for the Pelicans. So to me, when I was like kind of trying to you know place him within the list, like and I'm, I'm always pretty conservative on the young guys. I feel like he'd probably be somewhere in the 60s for me. Um, you know, I don't see like a huge breakout, crazy offensive scoring season for him as a rookie. All the messaging from their front office and coaching staff has been like, hey, look, this is like a team approach. Um, you know, we want Drew to be kind of the captain. He's, you know, it's still his team. We don't want too much pressure on Zion. And I think that will come through in some of their strategies too, where it's not like they're running every single thing through him constantly. And that's actually probably healthier for what they're trying to do, given some of the other pieces that they've added there. Um, so I think from that standpoint, uh, I don't see him in that all-star conversation at all. I think that's too aggressive. Um, but I do think that when you put together the, you know, the plus value on defense, which I expect him to bring and him being a, you know, helpful, useful offensive player, who's going to have incredible flashes of, uh, you know, athleticism, you know, throw together the, you know, the motor, the lack of character concerns, the team first approach, uh, the ability to handle as many minutes as you want to play him, uh, as long as he can stay healthy, of course. I mean, I think that's probably where I would land somewhere in that sixties group. Yeah, I feel like it's like how maybe wherever you'd put like Aaron Gordon, like if you're thinking about kind of comparable bigs who he could come into the NBA and have like a similar impact to right off the bat, like maybe that's where I would kind of anchor him in that conversation. It's so funny because like Aaron Gordon is like a really exciting and fun player to watch. But at the same time, if you told me who would you rather have on your team, I would say Zion like <laughs> immediately. <laughs> like It's just like I just want to be part of the Zion Williams experience. I realize there might be, uh, you know, uh, you know, more uh, variability in terms of whether it actually works out. Like there's some bust potential there in terms of year one. Like, you know, can he stay healthy? Is he going to be in shape? And, and all those kinds of questions. But I would just way rather just, you know, be immersed in the Zion. I think that's sort of his appeal right now. Um, you know, Aaron Gordon, actually, not to get sidetracked, uh, did we overrate him a little bit last year uh, at 66? I feel like he didn't have the breakthrough that we were expecting. I think we kind of crowned him as Orlando's breakthrough guy and it wound up being Vucevic no i think that's very true um he's a tough guy because he's another one of these players who were he on any team but the magic maybe he would be higher 
you know, in terms of the public estimation, I think he's one of the beneficiaries of us kind of treating the top 100 as a vacuum test where, yes, if you have a team that like runs DJ Augustine as its starting point guard and just has a bunch of like wings and bigs who can't really shoot and you ask Aaron Gordon to do kind of weird things within your offense, then this is what you're going to get is like a, a pretty decent player, but maybe a guy who seems a little shackled in some ways. And if you put him on a little bit more of a functional, uh, in more of a little bit more of a functional ecosystem, I think his game probably sings a little bit more. Brilliant. Rob, thank you so much for taking the time to break down last year's list. Uh, our few mistakes, if we even made any, honestly, I think it was a pretty perfect rundown and also previewing next year's list, which everybody can check out uh, on sports illustrated. I'm sure here coming up in the not too distant future. Um, Everybody, you guys can check us out on Apple Podcasts by searching for Open Floor. That's two words. Find our page. Scroll down. Uh, Once you get there, it will say Rate and Review. Tap five stars. It's just that easy. It really helps us spread the word, especially during this downtime on the NBA calendar. Don't forget, you can email us in questions, too. This entire conversation was prompted by an email from Gus. Uh, so openfloormail at gmail.com openfloormail at gmail.com I'm also on Instagram at ben.goliver Rob is on Twitter at Rob Mahoney check him out on Sports Illustrated as I mentioned until next week guys I will talk to you